Hello, I'm Ellie Harris. And I'm Mark Bowsher. And welcome to Poking Books. A podcast where I introduce a mystery author who will explain their book through three books which influence that book. And somehow I have to guess what their book is about. And Ellie will know absolutely nothing about the author or their book until they sit down to record with us. Their name, what kind of book they've written, I will know nothing until they enter the studio. Hello Ellie, how are you doing? Hello Mark, I'm good, how are you? Yeah, I'm I'm not bad, not bad in this cold, austere winter that's going on. Keeping cosy. Keeping cosy. You've got a nice pink hat and your big uh-huh. earphones on. To keep my head warm, that's where you lose most of your heat. So I'm trying to keep it all in and store it up like a camel over winter. Release it in bits. <gasps> top tips, top mm. tips. Just be a camel as Ellie's <laughs> exactly. tip. Um, so this is our first uh, festive special. Excited? Very excited. Feeling very festive. Yeah, except this one is slightly different to any episode that we've ever done because mm. you're not going to meet the author. Which is even more difficult for me, I reckon. But just adds to the guessing game and the suspense. It does. It does. So um, essentially, just to explain what happened, I had a great idea for um, a Christmas special and left it till the last minute and then we couldn't find a time when all three of us were available so I have interviewed the author and what we're going to do is we're going to stop every now and then and Ellie is going to have some guesses throughout and we'll see how that goes. It's a live play along guess a game at home. Mm. Guess a game? There we go. That's guess, a neat a term. guess a game at home. A zombie thriller would be the, the guess there. You're already guessing a zombie thriller mm. straight off the bat. Mm. Okay, why not? Okay. Ellie, are you ready to meet Alexandra? Yes, I am. Good, 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 good. Well, hello, Alexandra. Welcome to the show. Hello, Mark. Thank you very much for having me. No worries, no worries. And I like your your top. What does it say there? Normal people? Scare me. Sorry? Normal people scare me. Oh, I couldn't see the bottom of it. Is that true or just something you were given uh well this is an american horror story uh hoodie um which is um part of their branding um uh do normal people scare me they they certainly confuse me and um tire me i don't know about scare sometimes they scare me on mass yeah people people on mass i did an interview with um uh jackie morris some years ago and asked her if she liked people, um, because she was giving off vibes that she wasn't, and she was like, individually maybe, but <laughs> as a as a whole, yes. No. Um, well, once you can get to a collective noun of people, I, I find I find them difficult uh, just to keep up, or, or my brain is leaping about all over the place, and yeah. I get tired so quickly I have to go and sit down. Yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. I, I think I'm a very I'm very good one-on-one with people. Yeah. I like sort of groups of people if I know them all, but then I can mm. be the complete opposite if I don't know people. Absolutely. Alexandra, could you give me three interesting facts about yourself? I absolutely could, Mark. Uh, my first one is that I collect a strange and macabre perfume oils. Okay. My second is that I went to clown school. And my third is that I have just been on honeymoon stroke a research trip to Scotland, taking the sleeper train up to Fort William. 
Lovely. Well, congratulations. We got married in October um, and I wanted to tie in a trip later on in the year. So uh, we held off for a little bit. Lovely. I mean, that is a gorgeous part of the world. Oh, it's stunning. I love it so much. Let's go back to your first fact. How was it you described? Was it strange and macabre perfume oils? Yes. Uh, yes, those are the words and those are the smells. I love smells. Um, I've got synesthesia. So I, when I hear music, I both see colours and I can smell things come up um, and they all kind of revolve around each other. So if I smell something, I can hear a note. Even even people sometimes have a note in my head or a colour. So smells are very important to me when I've had COVID and my smell dips I find that very distressing um because I center myself with smell and I've got I've got probably about a thousand of them now little tiny perfume vials this size um filled so this one is pumpkins crave grind shows so it it smells of um illicit activity uh with a Halloween feel um I just have them scattered around so there's one here called darkness that's got just darkness darkness. (laughs) um that's got black musk and narcissi and um opium um and various and it's very heady and gothic um I've got one here that's uh Jareth so it's based on the labyrinth um so and I've also got Hoggle and, and quite a few other ones. These are officially licensed things, um, wow. and, it, and it smells. It's a fougere that you can imagine Gareth wearing, and uh, it's got a hint of leather in it, as you'd expect. A hint of leather. Um, yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's so wonderful. I feel like you must, when you're creating things, like mix these all together or put them in little jars and smell them individually to see what smellscapes you come up with. I mean. That's exactly it. I, I choose about 20 for each book or story or script oh, wow. and have them all out in front of me. Um, and I kind of, it's like playing little scent pipes underneath my nose oh. as I'm beginning to write a scene. So I have music and smells and often incense and different kinds of lighting to get me into the specific space I want to be. I feel like this is something that it seems a slightly untapped thing for writers Mm. when you're staring in front of a a blank page and then you're trying to to like, how do I imagine this thing that when I was walking about or I was here and there that I thought up, how do I get this there? And maybe smell is maybe an untapped resource for authors. Absolutely, because it bypasses so much of your thinking brain and and goes straight into your amygdala where fear sits and all of those anxious things. It, so it bypasses your brain and of your uh, just trying to think, you know, the, the, the nasty person in your brain that tells you you're, you're shit. Um, you can manage to get past that with smells. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, we should move on to your next fact. You went to clown school. I did go to clown school, yes. How, when did you go to clown school? It wasn't for very long, but um, I've been, I've been had mime classes since I was about five. Um, so I had 10 years of mime classes um, and have always loved clowns. I I love clowns so much. I don't understand why they scare people. They are... 
I consider them my best friends and I want to hug one if I see one. Um, once I was at a, uh, uh, what's it called? Uh, Tully's Farm Shocktoberfest where they have made horror f mazes that you go around. And one was just full of clowns. And I was so excited. And I just ran up to one going, <laughs> and um, I scared him and he, sh and he <laughs> backed into a corner. So um, I, I scared the scare actor and felt very, very bad and found out that they weren't all my friends after all. Ellie, just to stop for a second, would you hug a clown? No. Do you like clowns? No. Um, I'm not, I don't give it much thought, but no, I don't think I necessarily like them. I think because they're associated with so much sort of like horror in modern day, that is how I envisage clowns. I used to have a, a puppet. Um, one of those kind of like wooden, you know, it's got the cross at the top and the strings, the, the four points of contact. I used to have three wooden puppet clowns that hung from a ceiling in the spare room. And when I'd have sleepovers, I'd just see them hanging. And it was, no, it was terrifying. No, I don't look at them fondly. No, and I wouldn't Ellie, hug one. That, that is a horror movie scene you just described <laughs> That's a horror movie scene that you lived through. Above your, yeah, yeah, wow. the trauma's still there. Good to know. Right, let's mm. carry on. Okay. Um, but anyway, um, so I had a, it was in 2011 that I, that I went and it was a, a clown who uh, was trained by the very famous French clown school. Um, and, but this was in Brighton. And so I'd go along for this intensive sessions and it completely changed my life. Even in the the short intensity of of that year, I I turned my life completely around, and it was the year I got my book deal. Wow! Um, and that was not was because, it's not because of not clown because school. Of it. Well, in part, just because of the philosophy of clown school um, was if if something doesn't work, try something else, and if you fail, it doesn't matter. Do something mm -hmm. else. And I was an extreme perfectionist up to that point. And I spent most of clown school crying in a corner while dressed as a giant swan. Um, and I changed quite a lot of my life that year. Uh, and one of it was actually getting the novel out there and done. So it, it may not be direct, but it's it certainly played a big part in my life changing. And, and part of the philosophy was about showing us how foolish we all were, that all the pretensions that we put up, every mask, you peel that away. And what's really funny is what's underneath is, is basically the, the child who just wants people to like them. And actually, when that, that little person is on stage, it's funny and it's cute. And the, if you try hard, it's actually very funny whether you fail or not so it was being authentic to yourself and to other people and I think that's a really brilliant philosophy there's some great stuff about us you know learning to to laugh at ourselves and be yeah. self-deprecating and I like this idea that there's there's always humor and stuff so yeah. always humor and we are all fools and that once you strip us all away we're we're very similar Mm -hmm. and we like to laugh at each other and that's okay it's very true it's very very true just quickly i like the sentiment of if something doesn't work try something else i think it's very pertinent to this podcast so um ellie 
what, what, what's your initial thoughts? Um, we've got clown school, Scottish honeymoon, lots of smells. So that's a lot to take in, wasn't it? That was um, very rich. A lot of mm. facts there. Um, okay, okay. Based on that, I think we are looking at a gothic horror about a perfumer who is working in this kind of middle of nowhere. I'm imagining kind of like gothic building, really old school. The Lady in Black vibes. Like, So I'm thinking sort of maybe a gothic horror about a perfumer who is haunted by ghosts. Yeah, yeah. That's that's, that's what I think. Like that's my good, first guess. That's that's a very nice guess. That's a very um, nice guess. I'm not <laughs> saying whether it is very close, a bit close, <laughs> or not close at all. It's just very nice and very specific. It's nice when you don't have the author here, and then you're worried that they'll say, <laughs> Giving like, it away. what, or why didn't <laughs> I do that? Yeah, yeah. Um, there is there is a, a famous book called Perfume, which I have not, and a film, mm. I've not mm-hmm. read it, but I understand that it's set in Paris um, about somebody who makes slash obsesses with perfume yeah. um, and murders involved. That's yeah, all. they like, I've seen the film, it's got Ben Whishaw in it, yeah. and he basically has to kill people to get their scent he loves the way that people smell so he and it's this smell of like killing them sort of releases that so he kills them and that's the way he believes i think that's i'm remembering that right but that's how he collects their kind of like scent yeah it's quite dark it's a good film yeah no i need to i've got the book but i'd like to read it it. Mm. cool anyway let's carry on and um, do the do the first book maybe we should talk about some books okay Um, all right right okay Alexandra, do you want to tell us about uh, your first book that has influenced your book? Yes. Well, I the first one I've chosen um, is The Name of the Rose by Umberto Eco. Great. And I um, am one of these terrible people that knows about <laughs> the film and doesn't yeah. know about the book, despite the fact, you know, both are massively famous. So do yeah. you want to tell us what the sort of the premise of the book is? Sure. Um, It was written in 1980 by the Italian philosopher Umberto Eco, and it was his debut novel. And it's a um, it's been described in various ways as a philosophical historical thriller, as an intellectual mystery, um, various things to get get around the fact that they think that crime fiction isn't any of those things, which I could argue about for a long time. But it's definitely metafiction. So the the um, premise is that our two detectives, um, one of them is William of Baskerville, and um, he is a Franciscan friar, and he is assisted by um, a novice in his protection, um, and his name is Adzo of Milk, and they go to a monastery to help with something in a random kind of way, and then uh oh. Um, a death takes place. Someone is, is the one of the illustrators for the manuscripts, the illuminator, is found murdered. And so the abbot asks William to investigate and more deaths take place. Uh, someone is found um, in a vat of pig's blood uh, with, yeah, gross, wow. yeah. Um, with uh, blackened tongue and si- other signs of poisoning and other scholars and people start getting poisoned and killed as well. So William um, and Adzo investigate and 
see how it falls out really without wanting to give anything away um it plays with lots of detective fiction tropes um and undermines lots of them while also following some of them it plays with semiotics which is the philosophy of signs that umberto echo was a practitioner of um in his philosophy lots of language and wordplay um it feels like a game with the reader a lot of the time. I can't even think what the fraction that I didn't get would be because I read it in English. So being published in Italian and not knowing all those linguistic levels, um, I couldn't have as much fun as someone who speaks fluent Italian. Um, and I've tried reading it in Italian very slowly and it still didn't help. But it is it's beautifully written, mm. even in translation, and it's incredibly atmospheric, very funny and with beautiful imagery. And if you like uh, philosophy and things like that, which I do, um, it plays mm -hmm. with sacred texts and undermines them as well. It, it revolves around um, Aristotle's lost book on comedy. And we don't, we no longer have that, but it is evoked in it. So a book that no longer exists takes place within this book. And so it goes layer on layer on layer on layer. And there are secret libraries within libraries and labyrinthine journeys and it's wonderful it sounds like such a like a book with so many ideas it sounds so wonderfully over over yes. stuff but somehow isn't yeah. too dense and too confusing ah uh, it is quite dense okay. and uh, and it is very confusing i think it depends on your mood i read it for the first time when i was 16 17 when I would just fall into books and I kind of had time and summer holidays to do that. Uh, so it is certainly a rich and dense book that you need time and headspace to fall into because otherwise you go, what? I don't, what, who's, which monk is what, who, what? So um, keep a little notebook to hand um, and don't take it too seriously. Go, going back to, the clowning yeah. is it's all of it's about comedy and there's lots of jokes in it. So it's thought of as high literature, but, but actually a lot of it is about being foolish and making mistakes and coincidences and randomness. Is it reductive to think of it as a, a murder mystery or is it much more than that? Uh, I would take issue with the premise of the question in, in that um, it is a murder mystery and it is, an intellectual puzzle but then lots of crime fiction is so uh it is metafiction um in that it re refers to itself so it's it's not reductive to call it crime fiction because it definitely is but it also plays with the form is this sort of throwing back reductive because that assumes that crime fiction or murder mysteries are are lesser in some way yes yes i think that's the there's often um, erroneous uh, assumptions that genre fiction is in some way inferior to literary fiction. And I I, I read all of it, every, every genre that uh, comes along, and that there is good and bad uh, in, in all areas and things that I like and things I don't like. And the rarefication and hierarchy with, within um fiction it, it just baffles me like it does among people yeah 
it's it's so interesting because I feel like um, I I have this absolute you know hatred of of this idea that just because you're genre that it's lesser in some ways but at the same time I asked a question that automatically <laughs> assumed it was so that yeah. clearly still is in me even if I think it's not and it's well I think we're programmed to so it's hard yeah. to get out of that uh that track um of thinking so no it, it's more that I I also but it's, it's one of my hobby horses so um I would pick up on anything like that quite quickly um yeah. And uh, I've studied lots of literature and you can say quite a good proportion of things considered canon in English literature are would now be placed under genre fiction. There are yeah, there are so many things like I I quite like um I've read a few David Mitchell books and I I love I like that. What sort of genre is this? Are you yeah. just gonna call it literary fiction? But then you could probably argue like if ultimately this story is all being told within a a future sci-fi thing then you could probably say it was sci-fi but then you know and part of me wants something like that to be because it might give sci-fi you know a bit more clout but at the same time I'd like the idea of things not being genre in a way. Absolutely um, I talked to David Mitchell about genre basically I was at a ghost story festival with him in Dublin and um, I was on a panel and referenced him and Margaret Atwood, Angela Carter, um, quite and um, quite a lot of people like Peter Aykroyd who have been co-opted by the literary fiction element but they're all they're all you could call them magic realism which is the same thing as um, urban fantasy or you know you could it depends what strata you want to put something in and David Mitchell said I just don't mind um he loves Doctor Who he loves horror films he loves he loves genre and he wouldn't have cared if Cloud Atlas had gone into science fantasy which is what it is um and Slade House is horror but it's meta horror because it talk it talks about itself so that's wonderful. I just think they're all great. I, I love these ideas of just genre and the, the sort of the silliness yeah. of it and the usefulness of it. It's uh yeah. There's there's something in the name of the rose that I really um relate to and is pertinent to all of my books really. Um but particularly this one, I think. Um there's a quote uh in the name of the rose that is books always speak of other books, and every story tells a story that has already been told. So it's the the layers that exist within a text of talking to each other because you can't not, you can't have a book that isn't standing on the shoulders or, or on the spines of other books. What is my feeling based on the name of the rose? Um, is this still the ghosty perfume thing you were talking about? Well, I, I think it's more developed in my mind now. He's not just haunted. I think... There's been a murder. No, don't include that. I think there's. <laughs> I think. I will now. You been... said don't include it. <laughs> I think there's been a spate of murders in like the Scottish Highlands, um, and the murderer is leaving tokens behind with the bodies and it's something to do with smell. I've really picked up on the kind of synesthesia. I found that so interesting, mm. and um, the the. The detectives or whoever still think kind of like gothic-y in its genre or how it's presenting. Not maybe it's not set in that 
that time period, but the Gothic in kind of nature, I think they've had to call upon a specialist um, who I'm still going to stick with the perfumer route who has a specialism in smell and they're calling up this person to come and help them solve the crimes of these murders through smell but it's not as simple as it seems and there's other kind of paranormal elements that play into these weird and wonderful murders deaths i've got to say this is wonderful this is an idea for a book (laughs) somebody who tries to help i mean they've done perfume where the murderer is obsessed with smell but what about the person who's trying to solve it obsessed with smells that that solves crime through smell Mm. yes what's what's it called um, There's got to be a play on smell, like I um, smell crime. I, sm- <laughs> <laughs> I smell crime. Um, I smell crime. Oh, Ellie, you should write a series called "I Smell Crime." Do you think? Yeah, I can yeah. see it getting picked up. Yeah. Okay. Great. <laughs> Let's move on and talk about your next book. Um, so what is the next book that influenced you, Alexandra? Uh, my next book is Strangers on a Train by Patricia Highsmith. And Patricia Highsmith, um, who did is that a talented Mr. Ripley, Patricia Highsmith. Yes. yes. Um, um, this is another book, well, I've not seen it, but I have seen the film. You've seen the film. Could you explain to me the, uh, the premise of um, Strangers on a Train? Absolutely. Uh, I think he's an architect, uh, Guy Haynes, um, and his wife, Miriam, their marriage is coming to an end. Um, they both had affairs. Guy wanted to marry his new love and he goes on a train journey. And while on that train, he's talking with a, a very interesting, charismatic man who, a um, bit of a playboy, clearly seems to kind of have an energy about him, a slightly chaotic but uh, fascinating energy, something that Patricia Highsmith does very well. There's also underlying gay um, subtext to most of Highsmith's work, and it's definitely in Strangers on a Train. And this uh, playboy uh, is pretty sociopathic, um, and his name is Charles Bruno. And Bruno listens to the story about Guy's dissatisfactory life and just comes up with a suggestion that um, Charles Bruno says that he will kill Miriam, Guy's wife, if Guy will kill uh, Charles's father, that they do a little swap, just a little exchange, you know, one of those that you hear about on trains. Um, and Guy thinks it's a bit ridiculous and dismisses it. And they go their separate ways, and that's it. So they've sort of agreed to kill somebody else in their life. They have nothing to connect them, so the other person should get away because they have no motive for killing the other person. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, but Guy doesn't want to do that. He he doesn't want Miriam to die. Um, so they don't truly arrange that. But that is the idea, is that how will anyone find out? if there's no motive at all but Bruno goes ahead and kills Miriam which which is quite the uh twist the turning point and and then the novel is the fallout from that the unraveling um there is further death there is intrigue it is proper roller coaster bizarre stuff at times horrific and comedic um Nobody is likeable, which is always a good thing to hold up against when people talk about needing a likeable character. Is find a truly likeable character in Patricia Highsmith. You're very unlikely to, mm. but she is incredible. 
She is just fantastic. Her prose is exquisite. Her worlds are so sharply drawn. And I find myself drawn into some very cold, dark deeds and kind of going along with it. And that's always very interesting to reflect upon. Um, there's also lots of symbolism about doubling and a kind of Jekyll and Hyde subtext as well, The that um, we each have inside us our shadow, our double, who is the opposite of what we present to the world. Guy says at one point that they have met each other in Guy and Bruno. So Guy is very controlled compared to the absolute chaotic energy of Charles Bruno. He says at one point, two people in the same person, there's always a person exactly the opposite of you, like an unseen part of you, somewhere in the world waiting to ambush. And I just like thinking of that dualism and the doubling. And when we ambush ourselves uh, and bring about our own destruction, which happens in Strangers on a Train. When I read it, I think of Dostoevsky's The Double. There's so much of the person that we, we can't look at inside ourselves. Um, and um, there's a line from Dostoevsky that is, I am my own murderer or something like that. And um, I love that, playing with that idea. I'll do um, a riff on that at some point, I think. Yeah, why not? Strangers on a Train. Mm -hmm. What do you reckon based on that and Name of the Rose now? We still there? Uh, perfume Solving Murders? I, I actually quite like the Perfume Solving, solving Murders. Um, I think... Given what Alexandra's talked about so far, I think it is going to be quite a dark. I think I think fiction. I think dark, but with comedic moments throughout to kind of alleviate that. I don't know. I just like this idea that I think there's there's also going to be a ticking time bomb within this novel, like a pressure that kind of weaves in and cleverly comes back to it. Um, and also the sort of way that Alexandra talks as well. I sort of I think it's going to be very very rich her her style of writing. Oh, okay. Maybe it's not as simple as a detective coming up and solving murders through through smell alone. His superpower, their superpower. Um, I think yeah, that's a that's a really nice and really specific guess. And yeah, yeah, I do think uh, maybe there's a trade off there. The only other place my brain is going is going back to the first guess of ghosts involved and haunting. Could it be that this perfumer? I'm going back to sort of like number one guess, Perfumer is involved in some sort of trade-off in that they'll be able to get the best smells, be the best that they can be in exchange for murdering some people. Oh, so the person solving some crime will kill some other unrelated people. So Don't there's know. an interesting moral situation. Mm, I wonder um, whether there's like, you know, in order to keep his skill of... Mm. smell and all of this and be able to solve crimes maybe he's got to yeah. be involved in something dirty there's going to be a twist in this story i feel like there's a twist so whatever i do it's going to be like undone by whatever i say is going to be undone by some sort of clever trope that alexandra's written into this oh you've decided that alexandra is definitely too clever for us yeah definitely i think we'll probably carry on straight away i think and um talk about your third book so um, Alexandra what's your third book my third book is Murder on the Orient Express by Agatha Christie from 1934 
thank God. This is one where, although I have seen the film, I read the book first. (laughs) One of these books that probably most people do know the premise of it, but could you sum it up for us? Of course. Um, Hercule Poirot has uh, been doing his detectorating um, on the continent and has been called back to London. So he decides to go uh, and take the Orient Express from Istanbul to London. Um, And on the way to catch the train, he overhears a conversation that uh, seems very innocent at the time, but of course nothing is. And on the train meets a lot of seemingly disparate characters, lots and lots of different types of people. There's um, a horrible businessman called Ratchet. There's a governess. Uh, there's a Russian princess, I think it's Russian. Um, lots of people from from different walks of life and different countries. And at some point, Ratchet is killed and he is stabbed many, many, many times. And there are various clues left in his cabin, including uh, the window is open. There is a handkerchief with the letter H on it. There's a burnt piece of paper. Um Remember little Daisy Armstrong. Um, there's a burnt match that doesn't match the one in his matchbook. Match Lots match. of different things. Yeah. Um, and Poirot is on hand to try and sort it out. And and he does. But it takes quite a lot of finding out where the connections are to uh, little Daisy Armstrong, uh, a three-year-old girl who was killed in America. And it's finding out who could have connections with that little girl and why they would kill Ratchet. Yeah, it's fantastic. I, I love anything that is that sort of feeling of being trapped in, in one place. The uh, locked room mystery is one of my very favourites. So um, when whenever Agatha or any of her golden age friends do that, then uh, I'm all in. Yeah, always makes me think of Jonathan Creek, which I think was one of the first things that introduced me. I was obsessed with that programme and trying to come up with my own. I try and make up a Jonathan Creek style mystery and then explain it to people and no one could ever visualise it. And I was so terrible at it. Oh, isn't it? It's really hard. (laughs) Ellie, murder on the Orient Express. Murder, 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 Mark. Yeah, murder, murder, murder. Sorry, are you sending out commands to your underlings now? Why? <laughs> Fly, my British. Take him down. He's in Bristol. Do you know the postcode? No, find him. Do you know roughly which part of Bristol? Anyway, so you've had In the Name of the Rose, mm-hmm. Strangers on a Train, mm-hmm. Murder on the Orient Express. What are you thinking, Ellie? Thinking a lot about murder. For the podcast, not outside of the podcast. Um, it's all right. We troubling. don't have to talk. It's your personal life is your Spot personal counseling. life. You don't, you don't have to. Um, <laughs> you don't. If that's what you're into, you, you don't have to tell us. But there's no pressure to confess. Mm. It's a safe space. Um, oh, gosh, I, I want to be really interesting and go like on a completely different tangent. But I'm, I, I think this book that Alexandra's written is a dark kind of thriller of a murder mystery with lots of twists and turns. I think there's been multiple murders. I'm going back to this detective called up because of his sense of smell. There's been 
a trinket left with each body. Maybe it's a small vial of perfume or maybe they've been killed in a particular way. That produces a smell. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to say the plot of perfume, but I just feel like God, synesthesia is such a like interesting, interesting mm. topic. And that Alexandra collects all of these vials with these incredible different scents. Maybe it's my two ideas that have come together, actually. So this detective who um, smells crime comes up to solve these murders. And I don't want to like get ahead of myself, but the murderer has made a pact with these kind of otherworldly people or spirits or something to make sure that he can create the like the the most beautiful interesting rogue sense of all that no one's ever smelt before so like this perfumer has a pact with essentially the devil or whoever to create these inc- incredible smells and this detective has come up and he's kind of linked with this and maybe it turns out they're kind of linked in some way this whole doppelganger idea of your darker side <gasps> maybe they're the same person maybe that's the twist what i think i'm getting at mark is that this is a kind of very, very dark murder mystery thriller involving scent and murder and a real big twist Wow! with a doppelganger thrown in. Well, I was going to ask, do you think it has a festive flavour or not? Festive scent. I'd not even thought about festive. I was wondering whether you'd immediately assume that it would have some festive twist to it. No, I didn't. But the magic of Christmas. Or not even Christmas, like more pagan than that. Like maybe some sort of, yeah, it's it's basic. Oh, maybe there's some sort of like ritual killings that have happened because of this, um, the 21st of December being the day of the shortest day of the year. Maybe there's some some lots of deaths have been happening around this. And yeah, yeah, let's add that in there. I like that. Why not? Okay. Ellie, should we go for Revelation? Yeah, can we? Because I feel like now I'm actually really far off. It's going to be a beautiful comedy about Santa. And elves. I think there's definitely humour throughout. I don't know. I just, I'm getting this sort of sense because she talks about trains and that inspiration. I feel like, but I'm just not, I mean, maybe, maybe. Two were set on a train. Yeah, exactly. There's that kind of element, but I don't want to just go for the obvious and, and be on a train there. I just think maybe our outcast detective who smells crime and solves murders is traveling on the shortest day of the year up to Scotland to solve some crimes with his nose. Okay. Are you ready to find out the truth? I'm so excited for the truth. Cool. Let's go. Okay. Well, I think now is the time for a bit of a reveal. Um, So, Alexandra, could you give us uh, your full name, the name of your book, and tell us a little bit about what it's about? Absolutely. I am Alexandra Benedict, and my book is Murder on the Christmas Express. Um, It is set on the sleeper train from London to Fort William on the day before Christmas Eve. And former Met detective Ros Parker is taking the sleeper train up to be with her daughter, who is about to give birth. She's left the Met behind her. She thinks that detection is now in her past. But on the sleeper train, a derailment and a death means that she has to investigate after all if she's going to get home in time for Christmas. Mm. So all our clues were there, really, from sleeper trains to puzzles to murder mysteries. I mean, trains. Trains came in there several times. Um, Yes. Yeah. Are you a big fan of trains or is that just a handy setting? I, I love trains. I love train travel. The 
this strange limbo that you can go into where you don't quite know where you are or when you are. And it, it feels like um, a flow state. So on the train back from Edinburgh, um, I planned out a whole book in in the five and a half hours, uh, a 10 page document planning out a book and just didn't look up apart from to snaffle some shortbread and drink some tea. I was just able to go somewhere else, look up and see beautiful countryside and the sea and then go straight back in. Um, I like the the ritual and drama, the sound, the smells, not the smells of other people so much, but uh, all the delays, that's not so fun. But actually being on a train that's going, um, I love. So this story, do you think you'd had sort of idea of, like, oh, a train would be a good setting and then you happen to be on a train when it happened or was it actually that train journey from Edinburgh that was the trigger? I think because last year I I wrote the Christmas murder game and um, that did well enough for them to say we want another Christmas murder um, that's golden age inspired but with a contemporary setting and contemporary edge. For me um, it's important to write crime fiction that comes from place of authenticity going back to the openness of the clown self and that write about a crime that uh, I connect with in some way and train seemed the best place that would be a, a Christie nod but I could also have as you talk about the locked room the conflict so I'm writing from a, a manor house that's uh, snowed in at Christmas there, it's just going to actually make it even smaller and more um, oppressive on a train. But then I, I've been on the sleeper train many times before and I love it so much. I just really wanted to be back there, even if it involved murder. Nice. Very nice. Was there ever a temptation or was it ever a request from the publisher or similar to say, oh, should we have the um, the, the same lead character? Is it Lily in um, Christmas Murder Game? <laughs> Yeah. Yes. Was that ever just because it's um, Roz is a completely new character? Oh yeah, it's all completely standalone. Um, I think there was never a suggestion of it. I mean, I I pitched a standalone, but I I think at the moment they are uh, they're easier to sell to put it on a you know that kind of basis. I'd I'd love to go back and see what Lily does next, but I think she's okay. And that's a really boring place to start anything, unless you're going to throw lots of shit at her. And I don't really want to. <laughs> Not at the moment, anyway. She, she's been through enough. Um, and Roz feels like moving into... She's not Miss Marple. She's far more coarse and will speak her mind more than that. But the, the wiser, older woman, I wanted to explore the coming into the cronehood. I, I like looking at the um, maiden mother crone cycle. And in Christmas Murder Game, L Lily is maiden going into mother and Roz's mother going into crone. So I, I like exploring contemporary ways of looking at very old rituals. Hmm. Well, I mean, I'm really looking forward to meeting Roz when I get to, <laughs> when I get to read it. It sounds great. I would also wanted to ask um what smells um did you concoct um when you were writing um there's a a lot of very icy smells so 
There's Does ice um, have a smell just to interrupt you? And that's making me think of that famous quote from Titanic. Um, it's got a feeling in the nose. So it doesn't actually have a smell. Um, water does have a very slight smell. And when it's frozen, it's it, it gets amplified. Um, but it's more a feeling at the top of the nose um, on either side of that real cold. So that's often a slight menthol with um, white flowers of spring. So if you can get that menthol blast into the nose, you will feel cold. Um, and snow often has a sweeter element to it, a more powdery soft. So there's often vanilla in there as well. Um, but I've got lots of the smells of the train. So uh, Ros makes whiskey tablet and has taken that up along with shortbreads to Scotland for her daughter. She hands out this whiskey tablet and tablet is like fudge, but harder. Uh, I've got the recipe for it at the end of the book. Um, so there's lots of smell of whiskey. People are drinking whiskey in there. There's champagne. So I had lit lots of bottles of all of these smells. I've got a dark whiskey and chocolate perfume and a champagne perfume. Um, and one that is a mixture of fudge, clotted cream, just sugar basically so the answer is yes there's lots of these uh with some pine as well there's lots of pine from the smells of the forest and the mountains going past with a little bit of smoke talking about there being a recipe in the back of the book i i wonder how if that becomes the biggest rights discussion about is this anybody's <laughs> recipe your recipe or anything like that um <laughs> oh my goodness what a what a thought um <laughs> luckily you cannot copyright recipes you know, in when you look up recipes online mm -hmm. and there you have to scroll down for ages and ages and ages while they waffle on about something before you get to the recipe. That's to make sure that the whole document is completely without any reference to anyone else. So they could have nicked the very basics of that recipe. Mm -hmm. But because they waffled on about it, it's now theirs. Yeah, I feel your books are very much full of extra features like if you're, um, you know, if you were, if physical media was still really a thing, you'd be a massively overstuffed box set um, yes. full of um, extra stuff because the Christmas murder game has several extra sections at the end and even at the, the beginning. Yeah. And this has more. Wow. Um, so uh, there's a full Christmas quiz that I've written at the back of the book because there are quizzes on the train who are doing a quiz in the club car um and at the end i do i i've written a full christmas quiz um so yes i i, I like to, it's kind of the the echo playing games with the reader um i used to do it in my ak benedict books um and there'll be another one of those in 2024 um exciting i, I used to have those games going on but i didn't tell anyone so it was just for me. So no one knows the layers I've put into those books because they don't know they're there. And then when I was writing the Christmas murder game, I, I was beginning to put in those references. And there are still games I haven't told people about in both because that's part of the fun. I thought, actually, why not share it? 
with people. It's a book about games, so why not make it overt, which is why I put in the anagrams and the other little bits and pieces as well. That's wonderful. I, I definitely put lots of uh, references to things. There is a reference to Alice Through the Looking Glass and The Boy Who Stole Time that nobody has spotted yet. I love those little sort of things you sneak in. It's, it's little layers, little fun, fun games. For anybody who's going to read the Christmas murder game, there will usually be several chapters that are this happens on the first day of Christmas yeah. and within those chapters that are set within the first day of Christmas there will be somewhere an anagram so a series of words that if you rearrange the letters within them will turn into a partridge in a pear tree and five yeah. gold rings etc but I never found I can't remember what it is French hens how many of them four Oh, yeah. Four French hens. <laughs> it drove me <laughs> mad and I couldn't find it. And because oh. I did was... you cheat well, did you look at the back? Well, it's no, the cheating. reason I was I started sending you a message and saying, like, I think I found it here was because I thought you'd just done it as a mystery and I hadn't looked in the back of the book and realised they were all oh. printed there. And I've not even um I've not even scanned because I didn't want to cheat. It sat by my bed for the whole year in the hope that one day I would sit down and look at it. And it's just that I could just look at the back, but it's I feel like it's out of Love me. that. It's because it's Brilliant. short, I think. Yeah, um, it's um, it got harder and harder the longer the words. It, it's it's quite tricky. Yeah. But I like how that was completely optional. I imagine some people must be like, oh god, that's that's very hard. But then nobody has to do it. It's just completely. You don't need to enjoy the story. It's just there if you like that sort of thing. Absolutely, and most people say I I'm, I can't do these. And you go, don't you don't have to, no problem. Um, and then there are some people who that's what they like best about the book, um, and they love playing along. So I I hope to give something to most people at least. Yeah, I, it seems it seems so perfect. It's there for you, but you don't have to. Yeah. It's not. You, you know, sometimes when there's a there's a puzzle or there's something and it feels like the book's almost punished you for not getting yeah. that thing, but then you yeah. don't have to. No, absolutely not. Because that's not fun. No. That's, that's punitive and um, a bit elitist, I think. Just play along if you want to. I was going to ask you, I've got um, a note here, language in puzzles I've scribbled down. You talked about the Christmas murder game being translated into Hungarian. I don't know if the book we're talking about here, the uh, Murder on the Christmas Express, um, has is being translated. And how on earth does that work in terms of puzzles? Into like, oh. Do you have to find an equivalent? Does the translator have to find an equivalent? How do those things work? Well, an example is that the French translator of the Christmas murder game, which is Petite Moore uh, Endgame. Um, uh, she is currently doing a talk tonight uh, called Translating the Untranslatable Novel. And that's your novel? That's my novel. Wow. Yeah. So, so she was told by the publisher that she had to do everything. She had to do, because it's got sonnets in it that are also clues, oh, that have yes. got anagrams in it, that have got a rhyme scheme that points to the it's got lots of different layers to everything so she had she said it was the hardest and the best challenge of her career so far wow and she loved it and put in her own one she asked permission she said can can i have permission to put in an anagram of her name and i said absolutely of course go for it wow um so actually i like it that layers are being added as it gets translated although it's been translated into nine or ten languages now, and I, I do pity everybody who has to do that. 
and I'm very sorry. That is um, a lovely story of um, the the translator. Actually, there's there's a wonderful thing that books novels tend to be a one person. No, that's probably too simplistic because there are lots of books that are co-authored and and stuff. But I love that so often they are very singular things, and that every time there's a sort of hint of cooperation or, or something like that. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, that's really nice. Uh, it's really lovely and as soon as it goes to a translator it's not the same book anymore mm. it, it can't be um and the translator won't be able to stop their own language their own feel and i will never know unless i read that translation and i probably won't because i quite like it that it exists in a separate land to me in every way um and i kind of wish it well in its different forms Where's your obsession with puzzles come from, do you think? I've I've always loved puzzles since I was very small. I used to make my own word searches from when I was four, probably, and um and then fill them out. And I used to do puzzle sheets and take them to school that that and people would give me one pence for them. Um and very easy little crosswords or word searches. I found them really calming. Um I'm autistic with ADHD and knowing something can be solved quickly and there's a certain answer is great in a very confusing, chaotic world. You write down the answer. It's like I I love maths, um, simultaneous equations and anything where you work something out and you narrow it down and narrow it down until there's uh, something pure. So pure maths rather than applied uh, is beautiful to me. It's like the the perfect piece of music. And puzzles are the same. They just unlock and they take a while sometimes, but you know the answer is there. Unless it's one of these puzzles that I can't deal with where their aim is to completely change and change again and change again. And there's no fixed answer at the end which is very postmodern and very umberto echo um but i don't like it was it interesting being diagnosed at that point in your life like i had a diagnosis of dyspraxia when i was 10 and um, did that change everything or was it just a case of well that makes sense or both of those things it changed everything in that i now completely almost well not completely almost except um what i have previously seen as failings as human failings as being getting incredibly tired very 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 quickly um and basically collapsing and becoming catatonic um with all the input that goes in uh, rubbish with admin terrible just appalling um even those words are judgmental so i haven't gone that far but it's certainly not my forte I, I kind of accept that girl and go okay so how can I do this in a way that isn't going to be punitive to myself or um, detrimental I've stopped pushing myself so hard and uh, guess what nothing really goes wrong or changes so if I say I can do one or two things a day I try not to go beyond that even though my ADHD brain wants to do so much will never stop chuntering around and trying to find something to do so I just get it to learn a language or do a puzzle or something like that while the rest of me just relaxes 
That's good. Knowing your own limits and how to work with those things. So it's, yeah. Yes, exactly. So yeah. those diagnoses have in some way helped, even if it's just understanding the things you were dealing with anyway. Absolutely, yes. And there's also lots of help on how to deal with those elements of neurodivergence and much more help than there would have been when I was younger. Not that uh, women or non-binary people were diagnosed in the 80s, 90s, 2000s until very recently. So it's a really different time for female and non-binary neurodivergence. And that's extremely exciting. Wow, that's, it's very exciting. And it's it's good that things are talked about more and more and more. Because, you know, I I was very aware that when I just look at the dyspraxia foundation website alone that they two things they say are it very often um coexists with other um neurodiverse conditions and that has led several people i know to wonder if they are also autistic including myself um or may have something else they also say that it's very often missed in women and that this is just I'm talking about dyspraxia but because it's yeah. also already talking about it coexisting with other things and I could see that a lot I have had three friends or women who have had diagnoses either in their late 30s or early 40s um, and they're all diagnosed with some form of autism one who was dyspraxic who has now realized she is also autistic yeah. and it's could we talk about these things more and I just you know trying to understand how you know it has been missed in you know as you say women and non-binary people how it's just yeah and and why why was it picked up in men was there some weird pressure i could see with dyspraxia it's the patriarchy that's usually the answer to these things it is but it actually is Mm -hmm. because the default set medical setting for any condition apart from pregnancy uh probably um is male so it was studies done on male white children of a certain class and never moved on from there or, or thought about how girls would be socialized differently that you know, we don't melt down in the same way um it's often internal um which is why lots of women and non-binary people who are autistic also end up with fatigue conditions because they just burn out. And there needs to be so much more research into all of those areas. And that they're, they're just not there because because women. But at the very least, we can talk about these things and that's yes. that spurns more questions and hope Certainly. that creates a demand to talk about these things more and more. Completely. Yeah, it's really important. I was also going to ask a question, just completely changing the subject. Um one thing we've not talked about at all is music, because you have um been in various music acts and also compose is that correct yes, it is um i was a singer and songwriter for an indie kind of an indie cabaret band that had a sort of very small um underground following in the mid 2000s called the black tulips um i was a solo act called pimpanel and I composed music for film and TV. Most recently, I did songs for audio dramas I've done. So for Children of the Stones, I did the song that they sing for BBC Sounds. For Arkham County, for Audible, that I wrote, co-wrote as well with my now husband, Guy Adams. Uh, I wrote the song that appears throughout that, The Arkham Way. Kind of folk horror songs. 
and I I love singing. I I love playing music, and there's just not enough time to do everything that I want to do. I know that feeling. You know, if somebody were to inevitably turn Christmas on the um, just mixed up the title Murder on the Christmas <laughs> Express, um, yeah. If when that gets adapted to TV, obviously some. Oh, I hope so. Yeah, I mean, what in your head? probably would be done in some other completely different way that nobody expects but what in your head is the sort of music you're imagining is it very sort of classic and piano does it become very synthy what's the what's do you have any sort of feeling when you write these things about what sort of music it could have I usually write to something that has the same feeling um, which was quite hard to do for murder on the Christmas Express partly because they play music a lot on it so lots of festive songs are played in the club car um but i i think the something that gets to the rhythm of the train that that slowly builds um um so i think quite a hans zimmer-esque little little spooky elements once we get stuck in the highlands and it and it's a bit more glacial and ethereal so then it would become more more string based and and like curdled strings. Curdled strings. Nice. Very nice. <laughs> um and obviously you've written two books um about Christmas. Has that just been um a bit like, oh, Christmas, that's quite a good thing to tap into, or do you have a genuine love of Christmas? I adore Christmas. I love Christmas so much um that I get incredibly sad when Christmas is over and I genuinely I, I cannot stand the months. I quite like February because it's really cold. March to August, I could really do without. I could lose those months um, and not really worry. And my birthday's in there. So so that's, that's you know, I'd rather that we were just in autumn and winter all year round and that we could go from Halloween to Christmas and back again. I, I love the dark. And Christmas is a festival of light in the darkness, which also means that it's all about darkness, which is why I think crime at Christmas is the perfect combination. Because if you get the balance right, you can have that flickering candle, ghostly, sinister feel, while also looking into the light at the end, um, which sums up everything I really love. Nice. I think that's probably a perfect point to finish on, actually. And so thank you um, very much, Alexandra. It's been, it's been great to talk to you. You too. And lovely to talk about neurodivergence with you as well. <gasps> ah, ah, <laughs> it's a train and it is Christmas. Yeah, what, what do you think, Ali? Okay, great. For a start. And I'm also thinking, I got close with some bits. We've got a detective on their way to Scotland on the train. Tick. Mm-hmm. A murder mystery. Tick. And also the ticking time bomb. And I can mm-hmm. see Alexandra, you know, to get home in time for Christmas. And I just like to say the, the day before Christmas. So that I was three days out on the date. It's not too bad as a guess. You're two days out, aren't you? Isn't the 21st days, the shortest two... day? And then yeah, the 23rd. 22nd, 23rd. Oh, sorry. I thought they were traveling on um, Christmas Eve. My bad. Two days out. I think even she better. Said... Yeah, I think that's very close, but I love how you didn't tune into Christmas. No, surprise went straight over my head, the Christmas bit. Oh, yeah, let's do a festive podcast. Uh Yeah. Yeah, okay, right, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Cool.
Right. Oh. Shall we stop there on this little festive train ride we've been on today? Let's do that. Choo choo. Cool. Well, thank you very much, Ellie. And very close today, I think. I was close, wasn't I? And I'm a bit rusty as well. Still got it. Still got it. (laughs) Cool. Well, Merry Christmas, Ellie. Merry Christmas, Mark. Merry Christmas, everyone. God bless us, everyone. (laughs) You've been listening to Poking Books with Ellie Harris and Mark Bowsher. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Both of them are just at Poking Books. No hashtags, no underscores, just simply at Poking Books. You can also listen to the podcast at soundcloud.com forward slash Poking Books. Or wherever you get your podcasts from. And remember, if you do enjoy the podcast, please subscribe because it means more people will find us and listen to us. You've been listening to a Rabbit Island podcast and do tune in for the next episode very soon. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you. Bye. <laughs>